Hi, my name is Chris Kulmer, and welcome to the Music Teachers in International Schools podcast. In this podcast, I explore the unique world of music education in the international school context. You will hear amazing stories from music teachers working at international schools all around the world. Learn tips and tricks from a global community of leading music ed experts and be inspired to develop your capacity to be truly international in your approach to music education. Hello and welcome music teachers in International Schools family. Okay, fun fact to start us off today. Did you know that there are over 13,000 international schools in the world today? What was once a small group of schools catering to a globally mobile and predominantly expat population, these schools have been popping up everywhere in the last 10 years. There are literally hundreds of new schools entering the international school world each year. Now, excitingly, most of these schools offer a music program of some sort, which is great. But many school owners and administrators rely on international school music teachers to decide on what that program will be, what instruments and acoustic treatment is needed for new buildings, and what their departments will look like. And this is where today's guest comes in. Today I'm speaking with William Thompson, and William is the Director of Education at Chamberlain Music, and his role is to consult with international schools to help design performing arts facilities and supply music equipment and instruments to schools all over the world. In fact, every time I speak with William, his travel itinerary blows my mind. He pops up all over the place, helping music teachers to get things sorted. William is, you know, one of those good guys to know. So let's get to know him today. And William's here with us. So how you doing, William? I'm doing well, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Great. Um, And I love that accent. Where are you speaking with me from today? I'm speaking from my roof space. (laughs) <laughs> my office in my home, which is in a little town called Bangor. It's about 15 miles from Belfast in the north of Ireland. Yeah, very good. So I wanted to start uh, to get to know you and to, to help people to get to know you more. Um, can you tell us a bit about your background in music education? Sure. Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm from Bangor. Actually, it's my hometown and went to school here, sang in the local church choir. And uh, I suppose, interestingly, uh, I didn't think I was going to end up in music education because when I was doing A-levels at school, I was much more into science. So I was doing double maths and physics for A-level. But music had always been my sort of hobby and my interest. And I was definitely mentored by my music teacher at school. So I did my, what we had, O-levels in those days, O-level music appreciation in fourth form, uh, music O-level in fifth form, did my A-level in lower sixth did my singing diploma in lower sixth as well. I'd never done a singing exam before in my life, but he just, he thought, you know, you should do this. And to be honest, again, it was my teacher who really inspired me. And although I was planning to do a career in electronics or electronic engineering, um, in my last year at school, I just I wasn't sure that I wanted to do that. And I was very fortunate. I wrote to uh, Philip Ledger, who was director of music in King's College in Cambridge, uh, about the possibility of doing a choral scholarship. And a year later, I ended up going to Cambridge, reading music and singing in King's College Choir, which was a fantastic, fantastic privilege. Um, and actually, I mean, you're you're in Australia. One of our trips was to Sydney. We did every city in, in Australia, plus uh, Wellington and, and um, Christchurch. 
We did Japan. We did a whole stack of places with that choir. So real privilege. Uh, did that, uh, then returned back to Northern Ireland to do my PGCE and taught in Dublin for a couple of years and then taught in Belfast in a girls' grammar school uh, as uh, director of music there. But I suppose that the, the uh, electronics thing had always been one of my interests. So this is mid-80s. Um, we just had the education reform order. Uh, GCSE is coming in with and along with that compulsory composition for music curriculum. And I was really interested in computers and recording equipment. So that that sort of aspect of my life for, for the engineering was coming alongside that. Um, did that for a number of years, then became music advisor. Uh, music examiner for um, A-level and for GCSE, particularly for those sort of um, technology aspects, so recording, sequencing and so on. Uh, and then eventually ended up with a company called Dawson's Music, uh, went out of education in the sense of not teaching anymore, but working for them as director of education. And I will have come across some of our viewers today in that context of working for Dawson's. Um, uh, and then a couple of years ago, I moved to Chamberlain Music and here I am today. Nice. And I, that's where we met, right? When you were working with Dawson's music. Um, yeah. 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 That's and, exactly right. Yeah. And I remember you presenting a few times um, in that role and uh, getting to know you and what you you offered and sort of what your background was a bit. So it's really cool to, to be speaking with you today and to be able to explore that a little further. Um, Great. I mean, I, I, I love those visits. You know, I think you're yeah, right. I think it was probably part of the Phobos CEO network that I caught up with you guys and I have to say, a bit like uh, a bit like the Cambridge experience, it's a real privilege to do this traveling. You're saying about my travel schedule. I have been to South America with this job. I've been to uh, South Africa. I've been to um, Asia and a lot of times in the Middle East. Uh, but it's just it's lovely. I love meeting people. I love meeting teachers in schools. So uh, yeah, real real privilege. Mm. So you you've talked about your travel again there, and I guess that might be where your connection to international schooling. Um, is is that correct? And how did you get involved, kind of, with the international school world? Yeah, it it is. Um, so I was responsible in Dawson's for the UK market and also for the Northern Ireland market, which is pretty strong actually for us. Um, and because we were being so successful in Northern Ireland, that's why Dawson's asked me to take on responsibility for running the department. And then. Um, because we were doing things like designing studios and helping teachers with music ICT, so that the, the successful implementation of computers into music, uh, a company that was being asked to build a school in Abu Dhabi contacted me and said, we've been asked to do this whole school fit out, but they've got a music department. Would you be interested in doing something? And that's probably nine or 10 years ago. Um, and I thought, wow, this is an interesting idea. And uh, as you said in your introduction, Often these international schools want a music program and actually they want to have the best music program in their area. And I realized that that was going to be, um, I mean, for, for the business, it was going to be a useful place to start and to look to see some growth, particularly at that stage in the UK. Uh, and, and I'm sure, again, lots of people will identify with this. There wasn't a lot of money going into music education. So our market was fairly limited. And uh, like any business, we were looking for growth opportunities. And Abu Dhabi was was the first one, and and that was kind of it. It it it, it cascaded from there. So, did you continue working kind of in the Middle East, or did it quickly move on um, to other other countries soon after? Um, it, it it did move on, and partly that was because um, we built relationships with some of the school, the international school groups that are in different countries. 
but partly also, I suppose, we notice that, uh, as you again, as you said, international schools are springing up all over the place. And um, as a as a and actually, we were particularly interested in British international schools simply because we have that connection. Teachers would often know us as a brand, as somebody they'd bought from in the UK or got from got some advice from. And uh, and therefore we thought, well, you know, these people are out there, uh, whether they're in Thailand or in South Africa or in South America, we should at least let them know that we're interested in, in trying to maintain a relationship with them. Um, so, yeah, it just it, it spread most of the time. Yes, was in the Middle East. Um, that was relatively close and relatively easy to do. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I have <laughs> been as I think probably you have been been to Kathmandu and mm. Delhi and uh, Brazil and places like that. So uh, it's been it's been good. Mm, nice. Okay, so yeah, in the introduction, I was thinking about um, some conversations I've had with people about having to or being asked to design these music departments. Um, they've gone to a new school. They've maybe traveled halfway across the world to get there, and then they've they've been told, yeah, you've got to design this thing like it's just four walls. You need to make this into a music department. Um, so I was wondering if you had any interesting projects that you've been brought into, um, over the years with international school music departments, maybe something a bit strange or interesting or a oh, bit crazy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh yes. Um, well, I mean, I, there were a couple I was thinking about, uh, there, uh, on the slightly odd one, um, one of the school groups, was opening a school in Lausanne in Switzerland. Uh, this is probably about seven or eight years ago. And uh, we were asked to be involved in the design work for that. Now, it was an existing building, so they were having to sort of refit it to suit uh, a school. It was an existing office block, and they were making it into an international school. Uh, and I saw the initial plans, was a little bit concerned. So I said to them, look, I would really value, we'd love to do the work, but I'd really value a meeting with the architects in Lausanne and they said fine you know let's let's do that because um as it turns out these people didn't really have any experience in international schools so I remember sitting in a room very very plush architect's office they put these plans up onto the wall and it, on this big screen and I looked at them and I I said so this is the music department is it and they said yes and I said okay well never mind recording studios and music ICT you've got no store there are no practice rooms and the classroom is about half the size it needs to be. And there was a sort of silence in the room and they thought, ah, okay. Um, and, and honestly, I think they just had never designed a music department before. They didn't know what they were looking for. One of the challenges I suppose we always have is that, as you say, sometimes music teachers are asked to be involved in that design process, but actually sometimes there's nobody in post. Mm. So the, the school, a new school is being built and they're looking for, and I suppose that's what we love to do is to get involved at that stage and try and, try and advise. So that was one where um, it was problematic, but they did then have to react to that. And they relocated the whole music department into a different part of the school and they built those necessary spaces. Another one that was probably more successful uh, in the Middle East in Dubai, we were asked to design a complete um, a new block. So we were brought in to do the performing arts block, which included the theater, recording studio, all the teaching spaces, drama, black box. Um, and, and actually even in that case, the project manager wanted me to coordinate uh, an architect and an acoustician. So we were not quite given carte blanche, but we were able to get involved from the start. Um, so therefore we were able to resolve some of the problems that I've come against whenever I've seen, you know, I've come in late to a project and suddenly discovered that the 
air conditioning ducts run through all the practice rooms and all the sound is going to transfer and, and things things like that but uh that was that was good we, we enjoyed doing that one that was a that was a more positive one mm. <laughs> the sound going through the air conditioning ducts ah uh, yes mm. that's a common one yeah wow okay so as you said sometimes music teachers will arrive and uh yeah they they arrive to a, a music department that's that's already set up for them. But let's let's go with the the other way that I sort of outlined, where a music teacher arrives um, at an international school, or they've been working there for a while, and they've been asked to design a new music department or um, re- do a refit out. In your experience, what would be? Let's go with the three most important things to consider before getting started on a music department design. Okay. Um... Yeah, I mean, I've, I've come across a number of projects where teachers have been, uh, as a school has grown, particularly, they've been asked to plan the expanded version of their department. So it has come up, come up a few times. Um, I think I think the first thing to do, and it seems it's probably a bit obvious, but they've got to identify what their specific need is. Uh, and whenever I do that, uh, along with people, one of the first things I wanted to know is what's the curriculum that's being delivered? Then, you know, what's the size of the school? And therefore, what are you trying to, to deliver? What are your aspirations in terms of the um, the uh, musical activities? Because every music teacher has a different slant on where their strengths and weaknesses are. So they'll want to deliver perhaps class band in the class, or maybe they'll do instrumental work all outside of the usual curriculum. So uh, identifying exactly what, what it is that they need to deliver is, is probably the first thing that's important. And most teachers will know that because they'll know if they don't have a level or ib at that stage but maybe they they know that that's going to be part of what they'll have to deliver that's probably related to the second point i would say which is that um they should always be planning for growth uh it's interesting just the number of people i've talked to where they said yeah i need two practice rooms and i'm saying yeah well maybe at the moment you need two practice rooms but if you have a successful instrumental program and and also, if you have a curriculum delivery, which is really exciting kids and they want to continue that, so they want to have additional lessons on drums or guitar or flute or piano or whatever, then you need to allow for that potential for space. And it's very difficult to create those additional spaces afterwards uh, after you've committed yourself to a particular footprint. So always plan for growth. And the very best schools, actually, the senior leadership team will be saying, yeah, you know, we're, we're behind you in that, um, rather than saying, no, you, you can only have this amount of space and just get on with it, which is more common in, in the UK and in Ireland. Uh, and I suppose the third, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I suppose the third thing I would say is that um, I would suggest that people get other input. Now, that doesn't necessarily need to be from somebody like me that, that has been around in a, a number of different contexts, but, but colleagues, friends, just see what other schools are doing, because uh, again, you may find that there's some interesting approaches there. Um, I've been in a number of schools where they've been constrained to having to share spaces with other subjects, particularly maybe with drama or English or whatever, and finding creative ways around that, whether it's through timetabling or treatments, acoustic treatments, whatever. That's that's sometimes people have picked that up by visiting other schools where they've seen good practice. So I think that those that's probably the, the three key things at the start of that planning project. Mm, cool. So to summarize, that was know what you want and what your school, what you need for your school, your specific context. Um, plan for growth and seek some other input either from someone like yourself or, as you said, not necessarily. Look around in the community, look around with other schools, with other teachers um, 
to find some advice. Would that be the three? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that last one, I think, getting good practice. Uh, I mean, the other advantage of that is actually, I think, particularly international school music teachers can end up being very isolated. Some mm. schools, you're the only teacher in the department. And building any sort of context and being able to build relationships with friends and colleagues in the, in the area that you're in, I think it's a positive thing. It's it's worthwhile doing that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Great. I think that was really useful. Thanks for sharing. Um, okay, so you mentioned earlier your um, your passion, I guess, for music tech and recording and um, setting up that kind of uh, element of a music department. Let's talk a bit about that. Um, if a music teacher wanted to start and set up a recording studio in their school. Where should they start, do you think? Okay, well, um, it, probably a recording facility in a music department is one of those things that has to have a quite specific location. So, you know, if you're doing a practice room, a practice room can be sort of any size. It can probably be located be located anywhere within the department. It's not critical, although maybe we can talk a bit about acoustics later on and the issues mm. related to that. But a recording studio tends to be two elements it tends to be a control room that's where the person sits to do the recording with the recording equipment and then a performing space the performing space can be the classroom of course uh, but but finding the right location is probably the first thing and in some cases um, i've seen schools where they've done that in practice rooms or they've had an adjoining storeroom and that's become a control room so that's the first thing really would be to to identify that suitable location um, I think the next thing is, and, and this is um, sometimes a hard one to discuss because um, everybody wants the very best, but I think there has to be a balance between aspiration and the reality. So the reality of maybe the budget, but certainly reality of what's required for the curriculum that you're delivering. So yes, it might be nice to have a studio like Abbey Road in your school, hmm. uh, but, but it's just not going to be practical. And to be honest, there's going to be so much money tied up with that that could be potentially used elsewhere for instruments or for additional staffing that is it's just wise to be sensible and real maybe again just back to that point of planning for growth maybe starting small in terms of equipment but then adding over the following years as you discover that there is a, a demand for it so that would be it and i suppose again the last bit is really just about that equipment and that's making sure you're you're clear before you start as to what's going to be required a recording studio, most people will, will be aware that um, there's a need to have microphones in one space and the control equipment in another space, and they've got to talk to each other. And how that happens used to be through big, fat, multi-core cables that were fairly specialized and had to be installed with big stage boxes on either end. And nowadays, of course, that's all done over computer cable, Cat5 cable, Cat6. So that's easier. But if you plan ahead and you're thinking, right, my recording studio is going to be based around that sort of technology that will dictate to a certain extent your spaces, your location, and also your equipment. Hmm. So people could, if they had a small practice room and then a classroom next door, they could work on setting something up just with those two spaces, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And... I mean, what you need is, is a separate space. I mean, actually, we're about to put in a... It's actually for drum teaching, but we're about to install a, a separate acoustic cabin, a booth into a school where they don't have that extra space and they don't have any spare practice rooms because of a very full instrumental program. So it is feasible to, in a large classroom, even put in a dedicated room that's big enough for, you know, two or three people. 
Uh, again, I suppose for me, uh, it's important for teachers to think this space may need to be used for teaching, not just for a, a, a technician to be sitting in. So don't make a space that's big enough for one person if you're then wanted to, going to deliver an A-level in music technology where several students have to be in there probably with a teacher. Mm. Uh, but yeah, you can absolutely. Um, and, and I mean, it's not even necessary to have a window and a door through and everything. You know, nowadays you can use CCTV, you can use some sort of camera if you want to. Uh, the separate spaces are, is the important part of it. Mm, that's good. Um, I'm just thinking about acoustics again, which you mentioned before, and I'm thinking about schools that maybe they've done a, a building job that's not quite, you know, not great. <laughs> and there's a lot of leakage between the rooms in terms of sound, like the air conditioning ducts you men mentioned before. Um, I wanted to ask firstly, have you come across some really dodgy, sound and acoustic treatment things other than the uh the air conducts that you want to share with us because i love these stories uh yeah i mean i have i have seen schools that use egg boxes thinking that's what they need because they're oh so egg boxes right aren't the right thing oh yeah sorry sorry <laughs> okay that's, it might uh, be good i, I can't <laughs> uh, show me what your acoustic treatment is there uh, uh -huh. what have you got uh no but uh, i mean yeah i mean i can understand that because um, you know, they look like they're going to be the right thing. And to be honest, they do have a role, um, but to, they're, not, they're not a brilliant solution. Acoustics fall into, or the challenges with acoustics fall into two main categories. What you were suggesting there is this one, the issue of spillage. So that's isolation. Mm. So whenever you've got a room where you can hear what's happening outside and what you're doing is being heard next door as well, that's a problem of isolation. The other problem is one of reverberation. And they're treated differently. And sometimes people end up with um, solutions that they think are fixing one, but they're actually fixing the other. So I've been in a number of schools in the Middle East, particularly where their solution for what they think is isolation. So keeping the room separate is they put carpet on the walls and they put carpet on the ceiling as well as on the floor. So you walk into the space and all it is doing is basically absorbing all the reverberation inside the room. It's not necessarily helping with the isolation. The sound transference still happens. It still gets through the carpet. It gets through the plasterboard wall. It goes into the next room. The only way of dealing with isolation, really, is the construction of the wall. And um, most people will go, oh, right, OK, so you need to build a big solid block wall. No, you don't. You can actually build a wall with plasterboard and with um, acoustic treatment that will give you isolation. But it's important to understand that the two things are separate. Mm. Egg boxes or foam panels that are put onto the wall or carpet or curtains. They're much more to do with um, the reverberation and that's what the room feels like. So uh, again, practice rooms, um, sometimes you'll see them over-treated and they become very unpleasant places for people to teach because it's just completely dead. Uh, mm. it's, it's a hard place to sit all day if you're teaching and you know, you've got no, no reverberation or feel for the room at all. Um, so, yeah, I suppose that's that's it. Just people understanding the difference between what's needed for isolation and what's needed to deal with reverberation. Yeah, that, that would be the my most common question. That's brilliant. And I'm thinking, is there in your experience and your understanding, is there a way to retrospectively fit for isolation? That's yeah, yeah. that's doable. Yeah, yeah. How, it how is. Yeah. Work? I mean, it, well, I mean, if, if you've got a if you've got a school where um, let's assume that it's a solid floor. Let's assume that the ceiling 
that any any walls between rooms, any walls between adjoining rooms actually do go beyond the suspended ceiling. Because again, I mean, there's a school in Belfast I visited one time and the there was a row, a row of rooms beside each other, a couple of classrooms, a store, then there was a practice room, an ensemble room, another classroom at the end of the corridor, all one long corridor. And when we checked out what the problem was, the problem was the walls that the builders had built only went up to the level of the suspended ceiling, which is not an acoustic ceiling. So all the sound from the percussion playing in classroom one was going up into the void and making its way all the way down the corridor to the end, room at the end. So the only solution they had there was they had to actually construct new walls that went all the way up to the actual ceiling. Building a building an isolation wall is not um, it's not particularly challenging, and in a lot of the countries that I would visit, where labour charges are less and material costs aren't particularly high, it's not that expensive either. Essentially, it's going to be double plasterboard. And then some rock wool, which is a high density acoustic treatment, so like a fiber based thing uh, in front of your existing wall. Mm. And if you're creating a new wall, say, for example, you're dividing a room to create a control room and a, and a performance space, then you would do um, a stud wall, which is two levels of plasterboard, rock wool in the middle and another two bits of plasterboard on the other side. Uh, and then that will be probably as good as a block wall, depending upon the, the construction techniques. The only other things that are, are important then, of course, are how the door is created and how the window is created. And there's important things there, like um, if you're putting in a window, it should really be triple glazed. Now, that sounds incredibly expensive, but to be honest, all you need to do is buy a double glaze unit, which most people can get hold of easily, and then put a third panel of glass in. And that hmm. gives a little bit of extra control over the sound transference and uh, installers need to use what's called neoprene which is a rubber sealant so the the window is then mounted into this rubber sealant and that stops the vibrations transferring through so you, you again don't get that transfer of sound um, but I, I mean I, I can't remember how many times I have sent plans I'm very happy if anybody's interested to contact me I can send them you know sketches of the sort of construction and most school maintenance departments be able to do this kind of work that's brilliant i think this could be a great offer for people because often as music teachers we know there's an issue with isolation or uh or treatment in a room but it's just sometimes hard to know where to start and sometimes also you're thinking of your budget and you've got this to spend it mm -hmm. on and you, you maybe you don't have much budget so you're like what a, i'm not going to worry about doing my isolation i need to get some guitars in my classroom but at least if we know some some basics and someone to speak to or somewhere to go to find out kind of what we need that, that can sure. often be half the battle i think that's right and that's why you know as i said earlier on about getting some advice or or connections with the local schools but i suppose that is that must be one of the things that i spend most of my time doing and and i i love that i don't see myself really as a salesman although obviously i work for a company that sells equipment I see myself much more as a sort of consultant or advisor. Um, so, you know, coming up um, and, and I haven't I've planned these visits probably because we've already, already got relationships there. In some cases, those are relationships with local distributors. So, um, you know, we can talk about that maybe in a minute about, about how we actually get our equipment to mm. schools. But but I'm going to Qatar at the beginning of September, probably onto Oman at the same time. Then at the end of September, I'll be in Dubai the end of October, I'm going to uh, Singapore, then Bangkok, going to pop into Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And then I'm in Abu Dhabi and Dubai at the end of 
uh, November into December. And, and those will mostly be visits to see schools where they just want some advice. And that, I mean, in some cases, I might go and you know, set up a studio for them. I was in Dubai College um, just before school finished there, doing some work with Ableton with them. I was in a, a school in Dubai, another school setting up a podcast studio. Uh, and yes, sometimes I will do that, but a lot of the time it's just sitting and chatting and trying to help people with those sorts of problems that you're outlining there. Mm, fantastic. See that itinerary, William, like you're uh, you're all <laughs> over the place. <laughs> but it's good to yeah. know, right? Because if anyone's listening and might want to get sure. in touch with you and have a chat, have a coffee or whatever and, and get some advice, then uh, if, you, you know, if you're in those locations, there you go. Might yeah. be able to get William on board. Um, great. And I guess that's why I wanted to get you on the podcast because, you know, you are a the director of of um, of music. Uh, sorry, of education. Um, we're a director of music, but you probably still are a director of music, anyway, um, in some way. But yeah, director of education at Chamberlain Music. Um, and I knew you wouldn't come on here and just kind of sell stuff because I've seen you do this lots. You're just so happy to give advice and um, and chat and think about problems and come up with solutions and I've seen you do that so many times. So firstly, thanks for that because again, as music teachers, often we just don't know where to go. So at least people have someone now that they they might know who to contact. Um, and yeah, thanks just for, for sharing and, and for giving those little tips already that we've, that we've heard from you. Um, is there any other kind of areas that, that you wanted to, that you'd want to share with us or that we maybe haven't covered yet that um that you are experienced in in this in this world of music technology and music department setups i think um if recording studios and acoustics are are number one on the list of questions i get number two is probably um apple computers and music and the reason for that is because many schools um, the school's IT department are uncomfortable with Apple because they're PC based and many music teachers are wanting Apple because they know it's potentially one of the best platforms, the most reliable platforms for music software. And uh, again, correctly are thinking that if people go on into music um, industry, then uh, Apple tends to be the platform that people would be using. And if they're going on to further higher education, usually they'll be going in and using you know iMacs or MacBooks or whatever so the the uh, again probably every week i'm getting some sort of question or a request for a visit to go and have a conversation with the music teacher but often with the IT department as well to say to them look there is a solution here and i usually outline that as sort of four options that a school has if the school, if the music teacher is keen to use logic uh, garage band and then logic cuz those two software uh, applications do kind of link between each other um, using GarageBand at say key stage three or just at the start of a secondary level education it's easier to move into logic uh, and then uh, logic has a couple of different um, sets of tools that you can use so the initial basic level is very similar to GarageBand so students then are familiar with that um, but if schools are, are wanting to do that, there's probably four things they, they can do in terms of delivering uh, using Apple computers. One is they can go for a standalone model. And the standalone model essentially means you have some computers in your room that might be plugged into the wall to get the power and they might have a keyboard connected to them, but there's no other connection to the network. There's no connection to the school network or even within the department. 
And that um, gives them sort of control over them. But the problem is, of course, students have no control over their work. You can't create enough user accounts to cope with every student at every level in your school. So work goes missing, gets deleted, stuff is lost. People can't remember which computer they use. So that's the, that's the first solution, and it's the very basic level. The second one is that some schools will do a little mini network in their music department. So it's just a closed network and maybe have a shared drive on the teacher's machine or on one of the machines. And that at least allows students to save their work to a location. But then, again, the computer they're on, everybody can see that shared drive. Work can get lost. It's not being backed up necessarily. Uh, the third option starts to be a bit more interesting, and that's where you create a proper network in the music department. And that usually requires something like a Mac Mini or, a, or an iMac that's just dedicated to doing that server solution. So it's, it's allocating out the computer accounts. So a student's experience is they go to any computer, they log in with their details, and their work gets transferred immediately onto that computer. When they log off, their work is backed up onto the server in the music department. And that's probably the most reliable and the, the best solution that I have seen. The fourth is a little bit more complicated than that. And that's where the IT department wants to get more involved and wants the students to have access not just to the music location, but also to work maybe that's being stored on the school's servers. So that then involves connecting this little Mac setup into the school's network. That becomes more complicated because the uh, protocols that are used between Apple computers and PC servers or the network can be more challenging. It's a bit easier nowadays because a lot of schools are using cloud storage. So they're, they're storing their work in the cloud and pupils are able to log in and get that. But those are my four sort of options that I see for schools. And again, conversations happen around that. Um, interesting, you know, when we sell Apple computers to schools, we make absolutely nothing on them because Apple, in their wisdom, decided to keep all the profit for themselves. Uh, so what we do is we do charge sometimes a consultant a consultancy fee for that, uh, and or obviously we're interested in selling maybe the the hardware, the keyboards and you know microphones and so on. But um, that, but again, we you know we're not doing it for the money. We're doing it more because we want to provide that advice and build a relationship with the teacher that hopefully they find some good advice then they want to come back to us for other bits and pieces. Mm. Let's summarize a little bit then for people who are listening. If someone wanted to get in touch with you, William, at Chamberlain Music and get some support on something, what are the what things can people get support with from you? Let's get a summary. Okay. So if they've got, um, no matter where they are, obviously the fantastic thing about email and WhatsApp messages and um, Zoom calls or whatever is that we can, we can have a conversation, I suppose, about any of those things. And um, our, I mean, our catalog reflects probably everything that we sell, but it doesn't necessarily highlight the things that we provide advice on. And I suppose those things would be uh, the development of new facilities. So that's my biggest thing that I spend a lot of my time on is helping people develop either a complete department or a new school or a refurbishment or a recording studio or developing, you know, again, a, a, an ICT facility for, for computers. Um, then there's sometimes questions about curriculum. And that's harder because I, I don't I haven't delivered every curriculum, but particularly within GCSE and A-level, that's probably a wee bit easier. 
people are looking for advice and resources. They're looking for advice on um, you know the delivery of an effective curriculum. Sometimes they're coming to me and saying, "Look, you know, what would we need to deliver a class band program where we're wanting to deliver maybe woodwind in years four and five and strings and six and seven or something like that?" And and we'll talk about the options for that. And that's starting to get closer to the selling of instruments, which of course is what Chamberlain Music is is known about. But across, uh, I suppose the other the other thing we haven't maybe mentioned is uh, theatre design and acoustics mm. and theatres and PA systems. That's another area I quite often get asked about because it's got that technical aspect to it. Uh, microphones for choirs on stage, um, those sorts of things. So really, if anybody feels that they themselves maybe don't have the answer to it, then if I don't know the answer, I'll certainly try and put them in contact with somebody that would know the answer. Um, Again, building just that network of support. Mm. And if people want to get in touch with you, um, we'll obviously add this to show notes that people can, can click away and find. But how how's the best way to get in touch with you at the moment? Probably email is the best way. So william.thompson, that's T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at chamberlainmusic.com. Um, uh, very happy then also to share, you know, a WhatsApp number for people who find a, a chat is easier. Sometimes it is easier to do a video call or um, a Zoom call, uh, but very happy just to start that initial conversation on email if that if that suits people. Mm. Excellent. Well, we'll definitely do that. We'll um, we'll drop your email in the show notes Great. and um, some links and things. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you so much, William, for again for your advice for your. Your, your tips, your experiences, and um, and I guess your wisdom in in this arena. Um, I've certainly learned a couple of things in the conversation or at least refined a couple of my bits of understanding and um, I really appreciate that. So thank you for your time um, and really looking forward to catching up with you again at some point soon. Um, Great. So thank you. Thanks, Chris. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Music Teachers in International Schools podcast. Listen to other episodes by visiting mtiis.com or learn more about our community on Facebook by simply searching for Music Teachers in International Schools. If you know someone who you think I should get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at chriskulma.com, C-H-R-I-S-K-O-E, lma.com. See you next time.